I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. So today, Crime Scene Today is coming from the Texas Division of the IAI in Austin at their conference. We're lucky enough to get Mike Fulton to come down and talk to us in reference to his expertise in lights and photography. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, man. Thanks, Dan. So if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your history and in getting into photography. I know you've done this a long time. You've taught photographers around the world, and it's nearly sort of a byproduct that your, your crime scene is more that you were into photography beforehand. Well, at, yes and no. So I, I've always was interested in photography, but I, I played sports in college. Um, so it was just kind of an uncool thing to really like photography back back when you're in a big jock, I guess. Um, I stopped playing sports and I got into criminal justice and basically wanted to be a crime scene investigator because back then you had to be law enforcement to be a crime scene investigator. I was lucky enough to have a college professor that had some experience in and what is now called forensics. Back then it was just a criminal investigator. Right. And um, when I got into it, I really started expanding on my passion for photography, um, taking the classes. Back then you would, you know, it was through Texas DPS or, or FBI was really the only training organizations that taught you. But for the most part, I'm self-taught. I found my dad's camera that he got in Vietnam when he was in the Navy, and I kind of loved puzzles and all these buttons and needles on the camera, I, I self-taught myself and really just had a passion for it. And then, like anything else, I like science, so I really tried to expand upon how can I perfect, how can I make photography, crime scene photography better, since I took it every scene, and back then was film day, so every Friday I was in our dark room and I developed our own film and really tried to push the limits on crime scene to try to make my photos better. So I got into wireless flash, and of course back then there was little peanut slaves and Polaroid cameras is how I started and medium format and then as the Canon which is my preferred um, brand but I teach all brands when the 550 came out it had the first infrared system or they call line of sight so that's where I really started getting into line of sight and off-camera lighting and for crime scenes and then I just started rolling that over into my private company photographing weddings and that kind of stuff. So now you're a private company, you're, you're non-crime scene, so now correct. were you doing that before crime scene? Or, no. So no. crime scene sort of put you into the private y photography? Yes. I mean, well, yes and no. I didn't do it for money before crime scene. I didn't feel comfortable, but you know how even back then, it was even, it's even worse today with digital because a lot of people have cameras with iPhones and et cetera, but back then, if you had a decent camera, film camera, people always ask you for Right. You, can whatever. you shoot my wedding? Can you shoot yeah. my senior? Right. And so I kind of did that for friends and family first, but then when I got into crime scene and really started getting professional education and realizing that education that I already knew a lot of this, it gave me my confidence. And then I started photographing weddings. So I guess my, I got in crime scene in 95. My first wedding was about 93. So a little bit before crime scene, but it was for, I think I did my first wedding for actually 50 pounds of, of shrimp because okay. I live on the coast and that was the trade because right. the, the groom's father owned um, a shrimping company and I was actually quite happy about that. So can someone still pay you 50 pounds of shrimp? No. You're good for well, a yes, but there will be some money involved as okay. well. Definitely money. So, um, so today I have over a thousand weddings under my belt. Wow. Wow. So that's, but that's not all you do. No. 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 You, what, because you own some other companies, photo companies? I do. Companies? I, well, I have, I have photography studios and we do a lot of volume as well. So when you come into high school, school photography, dance studios, little leagues, soccer leagues, that kind of stuff, we do that as well as high-end portrait family and high school seniors. So now when you say we, my I wife know, is involved in it as right? well, and so then of course have we have employees. A partnership and husband and wife. And That's how we met. I was teaching photography in New Orleans, and quite honestly, she'll probably be embarrassed, but I walked into a bar, and there was a girl that was sober dancing on the bar, and I said, if this girl can dance sober on a bar, I got to get to know who this woman is. Okay. <laughs> and now we're married with kids. Awesome. So now you started in film obviously, yes. many years ago. So you've seen the transition over to digital. 
I don't think anybody else is is shooting film anymore out there. I, I haven't met a crime not scene. Not for crime scene. Crime it, scene is not doing film anymore. Yeah, no. In in the in the professional world or in photography, you have your millennials that think film is cool. So you have some of those, the hipsters that are shooting film. And then you have some um, older guys and girls that kind of go back and film. So for some of my very high-end clients in the professional photography world, weddings, I will actually upsell and actually hire someone to just to photograph film. And a lot of our clients find that kind of cool. It's almost a bonus for them. So we'll photograph the normal wedding digital, and then we'll have someone that comes in and just shoots film and, and does the real artistic stuff. Are they still shooting 35 millimeter, or are they shooting medium format? Most of these people that I hire are medium formats, but there are some 35 millimeters. So do you feel there's any need or use for medium format in crime scene? Today, no, not with the digital cameras. Um, so, the sensors are so big, it's almost equivalent to what we used to have, like the Mamiya 645s and stuff. So what point do you feel, and I gather we're talking megapixels and the information mm -hmm. coming in, so at what point do you feel we reached film, the, the quality that we used oh, to have Oh, that's a good film? question. I, you know, I think for the longest time, the companies really pushed the consumer on megapixels. Right. And that's how they got more money out of you, and it was really, it was overkill. Because anything after five, six million megapixels, you're getting a clear eight by 10, even 11 by 14. And quite honestly, after that, what do most consumers put on their walls? They don't put anything really bigger on their walls than that. But they still pushed more megapixels to get money out of you. Because it's all about the quality of sensor, not necessarily the megapixels. But that's harder to understand. Well, the pixels are different, too. Exactly. So like me having 71 megapixels on my, on my phone, is, Perfect and example. I have a 26 megapixel Canon, you know, D Mark IV, or mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, obviously, the Canon is much better. So, you know, explain a little bit the difference between you know pixels. I mean, size, density. I mean, yeah, exactly. Reason. Exactly. So, again, you can have a huge megapixel camera, but the quality of sensors, if it's a small, tiny sensor, it's still not going to be as good a quality from a, just a simplistic standpoint. Where your medium format where your medium format cameras that do have digital, that have the larger sensor, they're still gonna be better quality. You're just gonna be able to get a better quality image the larger the sensor across the board generally. But back in the old days, when digital first started coming out and you had your Fuji, your S1s and your S2s, perfect example, their sensors were better quality at capturing light, the low ends and the high ends, than the other digital cameras. So even though we weren't as high megapixel, that sensor was a lot more advanced and so the quality of image was better. So, especially for forensics, when we're doing a lot of low light and high ratio or high high um, exposure changes. So if we bypass the, I won't say the need for megapixels, but I mean we, we've reached the maximum. Okay, I mean so of effective maximum. Right? Let's put so, it that way. So what's any reason to buy a newer camera? Today, in my opinion, uh, multiple things. ISO is a big difference. A lot of the newer cameras today have a more effective low-light ISO. And for forensic photographers and for personal photography, like for weddings. So today it allows me to photograph images in natural light or indoors with no, with just the natural artificial light, much more effective. So I can photograph at 4,000 ISO with hardly any grain where five, ten years ago, there's no way you could do that. Right, I mean, on, on film, it was, you know... Impossible. About, you know, 400, yeah. 800, that was a standard, and then yeah. as the digital came out, the 1600 was pushing it. So now, most recently, and I don't, I don't think it's made it to the lower-level cameras. I saw a Nikon's flagship, and I mean, it's like an $8,000 camera, but they're up to 3 million, mega, or 3 million ISO. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. It's um, it, almost 256,000 is almost the standard today, which is just insane to think about right. from a film. As I film said, there was never film that, that had no. this number. I mean, this is all computer calculations of just doubling the amount of sensitivity when it's hitting the sensor. That This never existed Correct. in film, right? So at what level do you think ISOs are at to, to shoot crime scene? I mean, that it's not distorted or, or otherwise. Yeah. I really haven't done a lot of testing, so I can't really say effectively what that is. Um, I try to tell my people to use the lowest effective ISO they can get away with. Um, so depending on the situation, because I would much rather have a grainy image that's not blurry 
right. than a blurry image that's not grainy. And so obviously and what you're talking about is that the higher ISO, the faster our shutter speed can be, which is... is Allows gonna, more light, yes, exactly. So it's, it's going to be sharper. And yeah, I, th I think it's a great point to have them go test their equipment, run your ISOs up, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, because I think so many people still shoot at 400, at 800, because they have some older photographers tell them that, no, that's you never go higher than that. And mm -hmm. I think these days you can probably hit 3,200, 6,400. Oh, and, easily. And, uh, I can shoot all day long at 1,600 and totally forget about it. And it doesn't affect me one little bit where, again, especially in film, but even a couple of years ago in digital, it would have been pretty devastating to my overall case or professional whatever I was photographing. So besides, obviously, the, I would say the ease, we no longer have film. We can take tons of photos out there. Uh, we have our instant feedback. Uh, I mean, in the past, if you wanted to learn, you had to go shoot, write down your film log. Uh, which about, do you think there's any need to have a film log anymore? I mean, no. I, I've, no. I personally don't. I've heard people that still are making their CSIs do film logs. I mean, there's metadata on there. That, exactly. It's that, a lot more accurate. To me, it almost just opens up the door for bad data, where you write it down, human error in the log, where your metadata is going to be accurate. And it's just not needed. We don't do it where I work. Um, I know where I got a master's degree, they were trained and they were still teaching that. And I questioned it. Right. Um, because of, I don't believe it. And it, it's old school, the person that was teaching it was from the FBI, and that's what they used to do, and, and so she's never changed. The, is what we used to do, Correct. what we've always done, instead right. of just evaluating, is it really still needed? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, no, I don't think it's needed at all anymore. So now, your expertise, where you seem to have focused your passion and attention, has been flash. Correct. Has been light sources, mm -hmm. and, and I know you've you've taught for Creative Live, and for I know you've taught the PPA. You're part of the board of the PPA for the Professional Photographers of America. Um, and I know you're you're out there. Uh, you've taught around the world on this. So, what is your opinion of how light sources have changed for what we can use on crime? It's scene? been huge. So. When I started, and again, not necessarily crime scene, but for my personal business, I live on the Texas coast. If anyone's ever visited the central Texas coast around Galveston, it's not real pretty water. Everything is really brown. Right. Mississippi um, feeds into it. Right. right. And I have a huge chemical company behind me where I live. And Beautiful so, background. Right. Exactly. That was my challenge. And so, you know, you have these clients that want these photographs on the beach, so I can't use natural light because if you use natural light, you have to overexpose the background to be able to expose the client properly. Well, that defeats the purpose of photographing on a beach. Right. I can't use a reflector because even on a good day, it's a 20 mile an hour wind, so it's like a kite. Then I have to have someone there also to hold it. Now, who am I going to pay to hold it? I'm going to have the, you know, the mom. Again, right. can you hold this reflect? I mean, it just not does. It's not effective. So, for me, back in those days, the only way that I could get a shallow depth of field to blur out the chemical company, and also maybe not really see the water so much, blur it out a little bit, was to use a thing called high-speed sync. Well, with high-speed sync in the old days, and I say old days, 15, 20 years ago, the only way you could use high-speed sync was to use either a Canon or Nikon flash, because that was the only ones that were available at the time, and you had to use TTL metering through the lens. And that caused a lot of issues, because it adds a lot more dynamic possibility of problems that come into to play when you're photographing, paired to a light meter and manual, which is what was really taught in the professional world. So I started trying to understand why this flash would fail, why I was getting bad exposures, because I had to use high-speed sync to get my shallow depth of field. And so through that trial and error, and then when the internet started coming on and you have these photography forums, there was only like, honestly, maybe 10 people that I could find that were photographing TTL and high-speed sync. Everybody was manual. Let's just put my flash at, you know, one half power and I know at five feet away from the flash it was going to be f8 and 10 feet away from the flash I'll have to drop it to five six or whatever you know they had it all mathematically formulized in their head well with TTL you didn't have to do all that when it worked it worked great because I could interact with my client more instead of worrying about all this mathematical numbers and to me I really find that the clients care more about the experience over the photographs many times so the the flashes have progressed to, I mean, just like our cameras are, are pretty much a computer, and the flashes have nearly become a computer in and of themselves. Absolutely. So if, if you can describe briefly, I mean, I, 
we, we throw out the term TTL all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Through the lens, we know that, but I mean, basically, how does it work? I mean, how? Yeah, so TTL is through the lens, which happens without a flash or with a flash. Basically, when you push your shutter button halfway down, your camera gets a light reading. So there's a light meter in your camera, and that's through the lens. It's reading light coming through that lens to give you that light reading. But it's a reflective surface, so depending on what you're focusing on or what you're, you're, if you're either in matrix or a value metering system, which takes in everything that you in your viewfinder or if you're on a spot meter, it's going to come back a little bit different reading. But it's still through the lens. So what TTL flash metering does is it, the flash itself, and again, we're talking the speed of light, so it happens extremely fast. When you actually push the shutter all the way down to take the photo with a flash, it seems to the human eye there's only one flash. If you could actually film that flash and slow it down, you would actually see multiple flash bursts that occur. The first flash that comes out when you're in TTL is actually a pre-flash that's always 132nd power. That pre-flash bounces off your subject, whatever you're metering off of or you focus on, and then comes back through that lens. Well, the camera knows that that flash originated at 132nd power. And so it does a mathematical formula to get what it feels is proper exposure. And what the camera thinks is proper exposure is 18% gray. So the camera does a mathematical formula to produce enough light for a proper exposure to be 18% gray with that flash. And then the final flash that comes out is what it feels is 18% gray power-wise on the flash. So is it the same thing that's throwing off our exposure? I mean, the, the TTL trying to be 18% gray, so if there's something pure black, pure white, or something extremely bright or dark, uh, throws it off. Is that the same thing that's throwing the flash off? Yes, absolutely, exact same thing. So if the flash, that pre-flash bounces off something extremely dark, it's gonna go, whoa, there's not enough light here, so it's gonna overcompensate that flash power in the final exposure and try to make that black a gray. So many times you have to underexpose your flash compensation to make that black truly black because the camera wants to make it think it's great. Now, this goes back to what the original question was, how has things changed from when I started doing this to today? Not only does today I have multiple flash units that does TTL, but now I can do it in manual or TTL metering and still get high speed sync. But also today, the cameras have extra processors in them that just do that mathematical formula for TTL, and it's a lot more accurate. So what we're talking about when it's overexposed for white or underexposed for dark or whatever else, that doesn't happen near as often today with these newer cameras. So you mentioned high-speed sync a couple of occasions mm -hmm. or whatever. So uh, explain the difference. Why do you need it on? Why do you need it off? Or do you turn it off? Or? Well, it's a, I leave it on all the time, personally. And if your high-speed sync is a Canon term, um, auto FP, FP auto is more of a Nikon term. But across the board, generally, it's high-speed sync and the, is a standard term. But basically, it allows you to get above your flash sync speed without seeing that black bar at the bottom. Okay. So in the old days, film, your flash sync speed was usually around 1 60th of a second. You know, even today, like the Fuji cameras that are mirrorless and some of the other ones, they're going back to the old retro style cameras. And if you look at your shutter speed dial, you'll have a square around whatever number is your flash sync speed. Most digital cameras are around your digital SRs for Canon and Nikon are anywhere around 1 80th of a second, 1 60th of a second, up to around 300 of a second of your shutter speed will be your flash sync speed. If you get above that without having the high speed sync set on, basically your shutters are faster than your flash is firing in the image and you will start seeing a black bar at the bottom which is actually a shadow from your second curtain curtain closing. Okay. What high speed sync does, because it's virtually impossible to get one eight thousandth of a second which is what most of our shutter speeds are today at the high end and get a flash to fire in there without that black bar showing up. So instead of one giant flash burst, it actually has multiple flash pops. So as, that, as soon as that first curtain opens up, the flash starts to pop multiple times, and then as the second one closes, it's completely lighting the entire area as the, the curtains open and close. So now you said that uh, you leave it on all the time. I do. So obviously the flash is operating in a different way at that faster shutter speed mm -hmm. than it does normally. So does the computer or the camera itself, when you go to those lower shutter speeds, does it deactivate and act in its yep, normal works function? Normal. Works so normal. It does that on the own. You don't have to push the button Correct. on and off. And that's the advantage. And, and quite honestly, if you get real detailed, I think Nikon has the advantage over 
cannon in this situation because it's set up in the Nikon body. High-speed sync, the functionality of it is programmed into a body of Nikon. So you can go in your menu system and you can set it once and you never have to worry about it again. By default, Canon, it's in the flash. By default, is Nikon set to that? Or no, it's you, off, it's turned so, off. You have to go into your, your, well, I call it the pencil menu, and then right. you go into your flash settings and you'll see a flash sync. And you usually have like a, 320 or maybe a 240 and go to your 320 and it'll say FP auto or auto FP beside it just set it and you can forget it you never have to worry about it again and then on Canon it's actually on the flash yes it's on the flash and what's even more problematic for Canon is lots of times you'll have it turned on but then when you open up your battery compartment it'll reset and it'll disappear again so a good telltale that I always tell my students is if you're Canon you have to get in the habit of always turning it on when you turn your flash on but Whatever your flash sync speed is, let's say it's 200th of a second for a Canon, if you're outside and you think you have high speed sync on and if you start to take a photo and so you're going to be at maybe your f-stop will be at 2.8 or 3.2 so your shutter speed on a bright day should be around 1 1 1,000, 1 2,000th of a second it will automatically drop down to whatever your flash sync speed is like 1 200th of a second and be blinking at you. Right. And that is Canon's notification saying, hey, you don't have high-speed sync on, you need to turn it on. And as soon as you hit it on your flash, it'll jump up automatically to that higher shutter speed. Which, I mean, you explained the flash sync speed, and that's, you know, uh, for some people that, that still are on the green box, which we, we advise against, get off the green box. Yes. But when they're on the green box, no matter what the lighting condition, it'll be 160th of a second. Correct. It yeah. goes back to that just from the history of that's what sync speed was. Yep. And so if they pop their flash up, it'll be 160th. Yeah, at least go to P for program, because it'll at least you can override some of that stuff. So it's a right. good start for the learning curve. Yeah, the only difference between P and the green box is it allows you to choose whether you want to flash or not. That's Correct. about it. Pretty much. So so you have a couple of uh, different flashes, and I do have a question from, from the past. Uh, I know you have some, what I would say, off-brand, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're not Canon, they're not Nikon. Correct. Um, in the past, there were plenty of forums with an issue uh, where off-brand flashes uh, would fry your camera. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I guess that has progressed. Very uh, much so. So that we no longer have to worry about this? Is this still an issue? No, not at all. Ones? I use off-brand camera uh, flashes all the time with my Canon and Nikon cameras. And even I have mirrorless Fuji and mirrorless Sony, and I use the same brand of off-brand flashes with those as well. Of course, they that's the advantage of these off-brand cameras. They These flashes, they work with multiple camera brands. And it's the same muscle memory. So I can get a Nikon flash, one that for my Nikon camera and one for my Sony camera, and the, all the buttons are the same. So I don't have to learn multiple different flashes. So from an educator standpoint, that's nice. So I'm not having to learn a bunch of different flashes, but also from a consumer level, it's nice. So I can buy the two different flashes, but I don't have to learn the entire how to operate that flash. Again. And they're less expensive. Uh, almost about half price. And are they as powerful? or have As powerful and actually have more functionality generally to them. Okay, so and in a little bit we're gonna we're gonna do a video and sort of uh, show some of these and talk about these. Uh, you had mentioned mirrorless cameras. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are your thoughts? I love it. Um, it kind of goes back to the old school leaf cameras. What, what was old is new again in a sense. Um, high speed sync. There's almost no shutter. You don't have to worry about your flash sync speed with mirrorless in many ways. But from someone learning photography. Uh, be it crime scene or be it just general photography, they're wonderful because you have that instant feedback. Um, it's very much like a live view on your digital SLRs, but really on steroids in a sense where I can adjust my shutter speed, it shows the final product. I can adjust my f-stop and it shows the depth of field. It does everything. So instead of, as you said earlier, when we were learning in the old days, we had to have a chart of how far the lights were from the subject and everything else, wait for the film to get developed. Praise to God, hope that we didn't tell the lab to make any corrections. And if we did, we had to get them reprinted. I mean, it would take weeks right, to learn. Right. Now, literally what would take weeks, I can do in, in 30 minutes with the mirrorless. So now the the mirrorless, obviously we have our live view and it's just the mirrors out of the way. It, the shutter is still mechanical or it's electronic in these? It depends on which one. It, it, it can be various. They're getting away from different ones, but it really depends on the price that you have. I mean, because you know, it brings up curiosity in the fact that 
you know, just like ISO. I mean, when we were with ISO film, it was based on chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. So there was only a certain high level. Well, now it's just a computer algorithm. It's all that computer. We're yeah, it's just binary numbers now. So the same thing with the shutter. I mean, we're, we're dealing with mechanisms that can only move so fast. Uh, once we take those away, it's you know, endless. Then at what point? Because obviously, one of the big difference between a what actually a high-speed camera, you know, one that we're we're photographing as we could photograph that flash to see that there's or a three bullet. Right. Or a bullet or those type of things at that frame rate. At what point, you know, do you think that would be in our hands? I mean, do you think we're heading that direction? Most likely, I found like our Fuji UV IR cameras are mirrorless. Um, I have one that I, I like showing off that's a little point and shoot that does amazing macro that's mirrorless. Um, I just bought the Canon R, which is their brand new flagship mirrorless uh, for my personal business. Um, there's other advantages to it besides just the shutter speed and stuff. Perfect example, my wife is a smaller statue woman, Korean, and the bigger cameras that we have, and she, we photograph for eight hours a day, 12 right. hours a day, she's getting tendonitis in her wrists and her elbows from just carrying that heavy weight of that camera around. The mirrors are half the size. The lenses can get big because some of the newer ones, but in general, the, the normal lenses, which are still very fast, are lighter. Um, and they have more functionality to them because they're all a computer. Everything about it is a computer. There's no mechanical aspects to it. So now you talk about new lenses. So I mean, I, I shoot Canon myself also, and I have thousands of dollars worth of lenses. Mm -hmm. If I go buy the mirrorless Canon, can I use my lenses on you that? You can. They actually, most of the time, if you buy the R right now, they're actually selling or giving for free the simple adapter that will adjust any of your EOS lenses to the, the Canon R. Now is it doing the, the EF only or is it the EFS, meaning the crop sensor lenses or is it? Um, honestly, I don't know because I don't have any crop sensor lenses so right. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you on that one. Um, I have the professional L-series lenses and they right. all fit with it. There also is another adapter which is really nice. It actually has a speed ring on, on it and you can program each notch of that speed ring to do basically shortcut menus. Um, so very much like on your big lenses, your 400 2.8s and stuff, you actually have a speed ring with buttons on the end that kind of tell you that you can set up your camera to do certain things. The speed ring will do it, and it works with, with the older lenses. Okay. So functionality-wise, those who have a hard time learning something new or want to learn something new, the mirrorless is going to be a challenge for them because it's a completely different learning system. But overall, the Canon R is very close to a lot of the other Canon cameras just with like they don't have the joystick anymore they have a, a touch screen on the back or a slide so do you believe that uh, crime scene will be headed that way do you think that there's any advantage currently of having a, a full digital slr versus the mirrorless camera i think the mirrorless is, is advantage in crime scene as well um my previous agency i worked for i brought in a sony mirrorless and the young lady that i work with my partner was learning photography and I could explain a lot more to her on the mirrorless because of the instant feedback and the simplicity of it than with the big digital SLR. And she got a lot more confidence and was able to photograph crime scenes better with that mirrorless than she was with the digital SLR. So it's a great learning tool uh, when someone's immediately coming on. Uh, is there something it can't do? that the digital well, SLR can do. I think the battery life is worse on mirrorless because of the, literally everything in it, it runs off the battery where on your digital SLR you have some stuff that doesn't. Um, so that can be a hindrance on a crime scene for sure. Um, they run down fast. They're smaller batteries. Now the Canon R uses the same battery as most of the other cameras, but it still dies faster because there's just so much more running off the battery. So from a crime scene standpoint, that was my first, I guess, issue I had. I had to make sure I had some batteries, extra batteries in my bag, where with my digital SRs, I really, as long as they were charged, I could go all day long. So where are they at on cost in comparison, megapixels? It really depends. Quality. No, megapixels are huge. My, my, my R is bigger than most of my digital SLRs. Um, cost, depending on what you consider, I mean, as compared to a digital SLR? Um, they're equivalent or less, depending on which model you get. Like you mentioned the Mark IV, it's less than the Mark IV, they are. And that's their flagship intro, mirrorless. flagship mirrorless. So it's around $2,000 right now, which is considerably less than your R. And then you have your X, which is sitting around five to 8000 depending on when you bought it um, for, for Canon, which is their sports model. 
So the, are, the mirrorlesses are consider, considerably less. And then if you go over to Sony, they have multiple levels. So of course, I think Sony's probably your most advanced in mirrorless right now. But the reality is you get a lot of, a lot of camera nerds out there that really want to look at all these little details. So quite honestly, it goes back from a business standpoint. My consumer won't know the difference. Right. They're both quality images, so I'm very happy with the Canon. So we talk about Canon. You mentioned Sony. So where's an Icon fall on the mirrorless scale? They have one too, but I think they're um, probably a little behind the times. Um, it's still an effective tool that's coming out. They're coming out with a new one here soon, I heard. Um, but I, I honestly think Fuji, Minolta is a is is a hidden gem in the mirrorless world. Um, their video on the Minolta is is extremely good. Uh, they have some amazing facial recognition in Minolta. Um, they kind of started getting back into into the game about five years ago in the professional market, and I didn't think much about it. And actually, being on the board of directors was able to go over to Japan and actually see the factory in the camp and the actual where they make it. It's an impressive tool. So if you are in the market, don't. My suggestion is to don't look. dismiss it just because exactly. it's not just Canada, because it's not a, a cool Canada name or icon, a popular uh, name. Yeah. Okay. So now you had a camera that you showed off here at the, at the conference. Uh, what most would consider a point and shoot. It's definitely a point and shoot. But uh, would uh, had some incredible capabilities. So what what model is that? And that's a little Olympus um, TG5 or Tough Five. Um, I found it by accident. My wife, I bought my wife a, a cruise for her birthday and her girlfriends, and it's a waterproof camera. And it goes, you know, 50 feet underwater or whatever, and they like to snorkel, so I just bought the camera. Just for the trip. Yeah, right? just for the trip. It was part of, the, it was part of the, the gift, go have fun. And when she got it back, I started playing with it because I'm a camera nerd, and I realized it has what is called a microscope setting on it. And it, it's very much like your green square on the, on the dial. There's literally a little microscope on the dial. And I turned it over to it, and it said it did macro photography. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Right, right. And I realized you could actually focus about one millimeter away from the from the subject. Wow. And it blew me away from a from a forensic standpoint in a controlled, you know, lab environment where we're capturing latent prints or we want to see the back of a cartridge case or whatever. It blows away the digital SRs. So no longer did I need to have a big camera with my macro lens or extension tubes or diopters and or it, anything else. And it's shooting in RAW. And that was the other key, it shoots in RAW, right. so you're not losing any any data, there's no lossless files. It is a really, really nice camera, and it's only about $350, $400. Well, and that's, that's uh, great for, as we know, um, you know, we work for some larger agencies that, that give us some money to, to do some amazing things, but there's also a lot of rural agencies out there that, I mean, their shoestring budgets, whatever they can find to do their jobs, even though they have the same job to do as us. So now you went over a lot of lights while you were here, and like I said, we're going to have a video and so you can sort of show them off. But uh, one question, and I'd asked you this uh, yesterday, we have trouble getting CSIs to just go back to the car to get their tripod. Correct. Um, and and I totally agree that many of these lights that you have, they're amazing, they do some amazing work. How do, how do we convince a CSI uh, the need for the better lighting to, to take the time to, to shoot it right? It's challenging, there's no question, because this is, like anything else, you have to have a passion, you want to, it's, a it's a job ethic thing. You have to want to do your job well, and photography is a foundational item of crime scene. And I've learned teaching, there's some people that they just go through the motions. Even sure. though photography is the foundation of almost every crime scene investigation, it is what we fall back on for all our investigation tool. I mean, there's so many times I've worked a scene where that's why we're, we're trained to take overalls at the corners of each room because we don't know what's going to be important in the, in the future. Sure. And that right. way we at least have it. And they just go through the motions. They don't pay attention. I mean, I did my master's thesis on this topic. It was it bothers me so much trying to figure out some of the issues. And you did a survey. You did research. I did on over two thousand crime scene photographers from around the world, um, over What's sixty countries. What did you find? Well, that's pretty much what I already thought, which was kind of upsetting, but also reassuring, I guess. Um, the it comes down to training, gear, and the big one, just the attitude of the crime scene investigator. You're going to find, and in this field, people get burned out. Those who get burned out calls had more issues. They just didn't care about their job as much as anything else. 
Um, the newer ones come in, you would find that some of them have passion, some of them don't for photography. It's not what they like. And they would just go through the motions. So my goal when I teach and I show off all these tips and tricks, it's not so much how to teach or how to photograph a crime scene. That's a whole nother class. In fact, there's lots of good classes out there on it. My goal was to show off a lot of items that I effectively use on crime scenes and hopefully they can pick and choose a few that would be effectively work in their field. Um, but it is, it's a much, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink concept. Right, and I mean, on the flip side, I know that there's many CSIs, they go from scene to scene to scene. They have another scene holding when they get done yep. with this scene. So there's there's that aspect, more of where you're from in the Houston area. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you have just the general crime scene or investigator that is, is on a scene that they have so much to do. You're, you're right, photography is the foundation, but that's one of so many things. It's, that, it's the first step and let's get it over with. So right. I can, and plus a lot of them don't care about photography, they want to dig in. Right. They want to. They want to find the wallet. They want to find the blood. Whatever it is, they want to jump in there, without taking photos first. And and usually it's it's not brought in. We talk about the tripod. That's not taken in. They're they're going to take their overalls. Well, then they come across. And, and the example I use regularly is the fingerprint. You know, and they have the fingerprint. And I can't tell you how many I've seen. And and luckily, in more of a teaching setting, that they're trying to capture this fingerprint handheld. You know, when reality of what we use the fingerprint for is that we're going to use this to convict somebody, take away their freedom, put them in prison for years, and we don't have time to walk back and, and get the tripod. And more importantly, if we don't walk back and get it, do we actually get a clear enough print that's able to be identified that could have taken someone off the street that would have harmed further people? Right, you're already dealing with such fine detail. Uh, right. Any little sh camera shake or blurriness is going to make that, that photo pretty much useless. So. What would you say out of, out of these lights that you know, we're about to, to show, what would be uh, the have to have? I mean, when I'm building, building my photography kit, okay, so I, I don't have a lot of money, but I do need to do my job. So what is the need to do my job uh, crime scene photography Obviously kit? Obviously I'm big on, on a flash and if possible two flashes so you can do off camera lighting or a flash and a wireless transmitter that would send the signal for the, for the one off camera. I think that's important. In crime scene, you've got to have a lot of side lighting to pick up detail from a shoe impression in, in the dirt or someone kicking in a door and there's a, you know, a light mark on the, on the front door or on the floor. Uh, that's highly important. Um, and then today, the LED panels that are coming out, to me, they're inexpensive. And it goes back to the ISO that we talked about, the newer cameras with a higher ISO, um, where maybe someone can't imagine in their brain where this flash is going to fire. They have a hard time picturing where that flash is going to be. Some people just can't do that, um, but they can see the light if it's constant, and that's where I think LEDs come into play. So you can turn on an LED, small one, light up whatever evidence you're trying to photograph, and then with the, the higher ISO, and then if you even add in the mirrorless, um, you can actually see the image exactly what you need to capture, and they can, they can get the image with almost no traditional learning of photography. I mean, I hate to say that, but as long as they right, understand, you can see it. they right. can see it, they can capture it. Um, obviously, that's a little more advanced, but if you have the older cameras, definitely, definitely flash first and then LEDs next. So now, LEDs been out for a little while. Right. right. And when it first came out, it was horrible. I mean, Correct. It, was, it was dim light. It was of no use whatsoever. Yep. And obviously, what we're talking about is major investment over the past five, ten years. At in LEDs. Five years. It lasts two years, really, even. And if you're not a big nerd like I am in the field and you stay up on it, you would be very much like, oh, I used to look, I looked at LEDs, they're not, they're not effective, and you haven't gone back to them. But it, it really is time to, to re, revisit that concept because they have some amazing technology. But it also comes back to not only the LED technology, but also the battery technology that they have built into these things. Uh, the batteries last for eight to 10 hours now, and they are effective on a crime scene. And they're also cool, they're not hot. Like in the old days, you pop up a halogen light in a, in a house, you're, you, you raise the temperature by 20 degrees, you're sweating right. and killing right. yourself. And that's not real effective here in Texas where it's already hot. So the LEDs run cool. There's just a lot of advantages to them. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to uh, switch over to the video and walk through and just sort of check out some of these lights and advantages they have and uh, we'll get your recommendations on uh, what we can use besides just our normal flash. Sounds good. While talking with Mike at the Texas Division of the IAI Conference, he also brought some of these lights to demonstrate. 
we took a video which is also on youtube and if you want to follow along there it's at crimescenetoday.com just click on the youtube link and it'll take you to our channel we'll be continuing to talk about those lights but he'll actually demonstrate them on our youtube channel as we go through this so we're going to go through uh, some of the different devices. We have a couple of different flashes that are not Canon, not Nikon. So why don't you grab a, a couple of those right. and tell me about them. All right, I'm going to start off with my personal favorite off-brand company, it's Fotex. Um, both the flashes I'm going to talk about are made in China, but Fotex, the neat thing is most of the parts are actually come from Japan. Extremely well built. It's the same build qualities you'll find in Canon and Nikon. So at first it really was um, worrying me that it, you know it's a Chinese product and my experience they've not been as well as the others. Um, this really, really changed my opinion. It's a very nice flash. This is actually the brand new flash that'll be coming out. It's actually almost a prototype. Um, what's really nice about it is the, uh, the Juno TTL. So it's a full functioning flash, TTL manual, multiple, everything else you would have in a Canon or Nikon. Now does this work wirelessly with Canon and Nikon or you uh, have to have other Fotex for it to work? You have to have other Fotex works. Now, but that is the one great thing about Fotex. You can actually buy an adapter. So let's say you have your 580s um, or even your 600s for Canon, the, the newer ones. You can actually buy an adapter from Fotex that actually slides on the bottom of the hot shoe of the Canon flash and it converts it over into the Fotex family of wireless triggering. And how much is that flash there? This flash is around, it's the most expensive one they have, it's around I think 180 to 220. Okay. Depending on where you get it. And what's the uh, so the guide number, the power? The exact same setup as your Canon or Nikon of the most powerful flashes that Canon and Nikon has. It's going to be almost identical to everything that they have, which is really what I like about it. Rotates, works very similar to all the other ones. It's extremely, like I said, very good build quality. Um, I've dropped a few of these, and they still hold up. Um, so it's a good flash. So now, uh, so on Nikon, obviously Nikon has the, the commander mode built in. That, mm -hmm. So does that, does that communicate with these or you have a separate device on the camera? You have a completely separate device. I don't have one of those with me. Now these flashes can be your commander as well in the Fotex family, not with Nikon. Now these, they work with Nikon. So what you would do is you buy, as you can see there, this says for Canon, you'll have the exact same flash for Nikon, for Sony, for Minolta, whichever brand you have, you just buy this flash for your mount, for your Canon, okay. your camera mount. And you had another flash. Uh-huh. So. so I have another one which is really nice from Fotex and I'll just kind of show in the other, these next two, the advantage is one big thing and that is battery power. These guys have actually lithium batteries in them and not your double A's. And which model is that? This is your brand new Fotex um, Juno L60, I60. Okay. Um, this is an inexpensive one. This is only a manual flash only, so this doesn't do TTL. This guy is under $100, um, and it'll last you over a thousand flashes. Like, I mean, this is such a nice, solid flash. What's so good about this is the wireless transmitters that you have. As you adjust the power, it constantly keeps up, like wirelessly changes the power on the back of this flash as well, too. So it's a very easy flash. So if you're confused about TTL, you don't want to go into TTL, maybe your mind is still manual and you don't want to do any of that stuff, to me this would be the, the flash that I would get today. So now the first flash, because I don't think we covered the uh, model. What was the model, oh, yeah. the first one that we had? So the model, this is the brand new Juno TTL. Um, Fotex also has what's called the Metro Plus. This flash will be soon probably replacing that one. So this is the brand new one, and it's not readily available everywhere. It will be in the next month or so. Okay. Um, until that time, the Metro Plus. They're both great flashes. The beautiful thing is you buy into the Fotex family, any product in the Fotex family, they all work, they all trigger together. So you're not losing money by buying an older flash that will be a paperweight because the newer ones don't go backwards compatible. They all work together. Okay, so what else do we have? And the other one is, um, Another company, it's called Godex, Godox. Um, 
Another Chinese brand, very, very popular. So popular that a lot of companies, for example, Adironda, they actually buy this flash and rebrand it under a Flashpoint name. So if you go online, you'll see Flashpoint Flash. It is absolutely just this flash, just they've rebranded it. This is my good friend, Michael Mulberry. He actually sells them as well. That's where I suggest you buy them from, only because this guy will actually fix and repair them. The problem with Godox is, is a lot of people will not repair them, so if they break, they are a paperweight. So what kind of price are we looking at for that? Uh, this is about $180, $190, depending on where you buy it, up to $200. The other advantage is this is full TTL, everything you got. Again, this is the Canon, Canon mount. It'll say it's, I can't remember where it says it, but this is the Canon mount. Oh, right here, the C. C for Canon, you'll have the N for Nikon, S for Sony. Um, so this is basically the 862. C, C for Canon. So now do these also have the wireless like an adapter to them or how yeah, the this wireless? This has built-in wireless. It's the Godox frequency, so you have to go within the Godox family, but they have the wireless transmitter, which is the X-Pro um, brand. Extremely inexpensive, very good, and also this guy has also a lithium battery, which is nice. Um, now the default, or the negative about these lithium batteries is they're proprietary, so you have to have a unique charger, where the double A's, let's say you forget to charge your batteries, you don't have them, you can stop at any convenience store and get them, so you have to be a little more proactive in making sure your batteries are charged with these, but the pro behind it is they last a really long time and if you do TTL there's a lot of battery power behind the mathematical formula that these flashes and cameras use and the lithium really makes your TTL a lot more accurate. Okay so now you have a device on top of there it's a unique so yeah what is this? This is a, a product called MagMod M-A-G-M-O-D and basically this is just a silicone sleeve that slides over any flash so it doesn't matter what model you have, it'll pretty much fit. And it's got earth magnets in here. And then it has a ton of adapters from gels, honeycomb filters, everything you think bounces and this is just a dome and they just magnetically stick on top of your flash. The nice thing is these are all silicone based. You can squeeze them up, you can throw them in a crime scene bag, throw a crime scene car, your regular camera bag, and they just pop right back out and they stick right on. They even make them where you can stack different items. Um, they're very well designed. This has even got a little gel filter slot built into it, so they make gels that you can slide into it. Um, and it's designed by photographers for photographers. So to me, this is um, by far the, the premier. And what kind of price is on those type of models? It really depends on what you get because they have a bunch of products, but we're looking anywhere from $25 all the way up to $300 for like everything that they So have. what you have currently on there for uh, this is, I think user. this is about $50, $60 if I remember correctly, and this is about $25. So under $100 for this, but I almost use this all the time as a soft diffuser when I'm using my flash directly. Okay, so what else do we have? In Finally, I got a little LED panel. Um, this is Fotex, um, actually a couple LED panels. Uh, this is my favorite. Um, this is the M180. They literally just started selling this online at Amazon. I don't really want to turn the light on because it's going to mess up the video. It's extremely bright. Um, it's the size of an iPhone, actually a little smaller if you have the bigger models. So I'll tell you, bring it closer to where we can see the display there. Yep. We can see. So what, uh, uh, what can we... Uh, hold that there. And what uh, what are we controlling on the back there? We can control the power. Yep. And what else is on? And you have the white balance adjustment. It'll go from 3200, which is really warm. Kelvin temperature we're talking about, all the way up to 5600, which is really cool or cold or blue. Um, what's nice about these, you can white balance it to the other ambient light you have in the room. And if you notice there, and this battery is not even fully charged, if you saw at 5%, I get it'll fully charge battery about eight hours out of this guy. Um, a nice little bonus also, it charges your iPhone. It has an adapter that'll charge your iPhone or your um, Android. So it's a multi-versatile LED. I actually have one and I gave it to my wife and I put it in the glove box because it holds a, a charge for a very long time. It's a really, really nice tool. Um, from a forensic standpoint, I love it. Um, I can get underneath tables, I can get under chairs, I can get under coffee tables. In the lab, I use it for photographing uh, detailed photos like cartridge case backings or latent prints. It's just a really, really, really versatile LED. If there was an LED panel I was going to buy of any of them, this would be the one that I would have. And, and you have a, a little bit larger one yep. there. They kind so. of grow up as we, as we get bigger here. And so this is some more Fotex. And this is the uh, Nueda, N-U-A-D-A 
S is in Sam, and then they also make a, a P, which is a longer, more panoramic one. Uh, very bright, and you have the same basic controls. Let me turn it on. This one runs off your standard um, Sony battery, which is very, very, very popular. You can get the um, NP battery just about anywhere. They're extremely inexpensive. I'm gonna turn that off in a minute because it is super bright, but you can actually change the power as well as the white balance. So how long does a battery usually last on one of those? Well, it really depends on the battery size that you have. Um, you can get some really, really strong batteries, but I literally eight to 10 hours easy on some of the battery power. All right, so now we have a couple of larger lights that you actually have set up on some tripods. Uh -huh. I'll, I'll turn to the first one, which is sort of a stick there. Yeah, I'll actually right. take it off if you want. I can, yeah. I can take it off and we'll show you here. It's, um, shouldn't mess up the light too much. This is a really neat, this is a Godox light. I'm actually gonna kind of show it, but it's got a nice barn door. You have your white, your cool light on one side, and on the back side, if I want to get a warmer, you'll have the warmer tones here. Um, what's nice about this, it'll last a long time. It's rechargeable, and it actually has a remote control to it, too. So from a crime scene standpoint, you can actually put this at the entry or walk through your crime scene one time, put it up, and you'll be able to control not only the power, but the white balance without contaminating your, your scene anymore. Um, I also like the design, the handheld. Um, that way I can actually, you know, get in small corners. I can shove it in areas. So it's a really versatile, simplistic light. This one runs about $180. Okay. And the last one, which we're actually using to help uh, light this video. It's my so, favorite. So we will uh, move this on in so we can sort of just see it a little bit closer and not, I don't know what percent we're on there. But uh, pull, it yeah, around. Can pull it on around. Okay. We'll move that up and around. And there we go. So, so I have the big giant Sony type batteries on the back, and there's two of them. It does recommend that you use two. It'll run off one, but I wouldn't recommend it. Take uh, take the light there, and let's move that in so we actually, uh, there we go. We'll light you up with that while we talk about this one. Turn up the power a little bit. So this is the Nueda R3. It is $180. It is extremely bright soft, soft LED, and I think that's the key word here. Um, so many LEDs have that very harsh shadows, falls off, the light falls off very quickly. This is a very nice, almost like you have a soft box or diffuser built in naturally. It can run off the batteries or it can be plugged into a wall. You have a A, B switch if it's battery or, or wall operated here, and then you have your simple tube brightness, which is just at 100%, and then your white balance color temperature control. Very simplistic. It doesn't come with a light stand, but from everything here up it comes with, so it'll tilt, it'll turn, it'll do whatever you need, and this has been on for a while, and it's extremely cool. It doesn't get hot. So now, obviously we can use it to, to light up for photography, but you've all said you, you put this room just to light up. I mean, Absolutely. Just, just to use it I'll basically light. use this, pop it off the white ceilings that I have at crime scenes, and then it'll light up an entire room for me. Especially when we're first starting an investigation where we don't know what's going on, we don't want to turn on light switches, maybe there is no power. This guy is really, really, really important to the investigation. It allows us not only to be able to visually see stuff, but also for our cameras to be able to help with autofocus and other aspects. Okay, well, we appreciate you showing all of these different things, and, and obviously there's uh, many options and uh, certainly low cost from what uh, we used to be dealing with and trying to light up our scenes and stuff. Uh, so thank you so much for Absolutely. taking time to, to do this uh, and uh, share this information. I want to thank Mike again for coming out, demonstrating these lights, just talking about the updates and new technology and photography and how it's affecting crime scenes and forensic photography. Mike not only has been a crime scene investigator for many years, but also a professional photographer, as we spoke about in the interview. He's taught classes on creativelive.com about lighting and slow sync flash. So we're going to put some links on our YouTube and on our Facebook page. If you would like to follow up with any of his classes and hear more from Mike Fulton, we're going to put those links there. He also prepared a document of all the many different lights and things that he's talked about today. And we'll put a link to that PDF also on our YouTube Facebook, and on our crimescenetoday.com. Thank you for joining us. We would again like to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford, located in Spring at Luetta and 45. You can find them on planetford.com. If you'd like to be a guest on our show or if there's topics that you'd like covered, you can always email us at dan at crimescenetoday.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.